Welcome to a new Nordea on Your Mind podcast. I'm Johan Chokmi and with me I have Victor Sonebeck. Great to be here with you, Victor. Glad to be back. And this time we have released a new Nordea on Your Mind about the topic of project finance. And I guess you could say just briefly that this picks up on what we started writing about in our previous Nordea on Your Mind, which was about uh, CapEx. And we titled it CapEx 4, since we've written about the topic multiple times before. But this time we looked at the uh, more or less inevitable uh, global sustainable energy transition and how this could revive the need for for corporate uh, capital expenditures. And just briefly, I mean, what, what we kind of have seen in the past is historically low investments. And what we found in this report is that that given, for example, the Paris Agreement of li- limiting uh, global warming uh, and, and given other global uh, global climate goals, there will be a massive need for investments. And with this number uh, about project finance, uh, we want to talk about one way in which these projects could be financed. Exactly. We sort of started off by identifying the need for corporates to invest and highlighting this global series of measures uh, to address climate change as a likely driver for corporate investment to revive. And and a key point to hit home here, I think, is just the magnitude of the need is really enormous. We're talking, depending on what kind of report you refer to, anywhere between $4 trillion and $7 trillion a year in additional investments being needed around the world, up to about 2030, compared with looking at just how much do listed companies, all of them around the world, invest every year. And roughly speaking, according to consensus expectations right now, it's an annual level of around $4 trillion. Just to make this clear, so, so these $4 to $7 trillion, that's additional Spending, right? Exactly. And then you can always discuss, will some of it actually be earlier investments which are sort of relabeled into sustainable energy transition investments? So I don't think you should go down to decimal point type interpretations of this kind of data. But the key thing to really underline here is that the amount of capital that needs to be invested in order to make the journey towards limiting global warming is gigantic. But beyond that, because we already highlighted this in our previous Nodiani Mind report, what is also new here and adding further impetus to all this is, of course, the new geopolitical situation that we have with the military conflict in the Ukraine, which means that Europe, being pretty dependent on fossil fuel energy imports from Russia, needs to eliminate its dependence on those energy imports. And that, of course, means that this sustainable energy transition, in the case of Europe, will need to be even faster. So from a starting point of, of having to invest a lot in, in quite a short time period, this has, what could you say, become even more urgent, yeah. g- given what's happening in, in Ukraine. And, and, and just as, as an example, so the, the EU Commission repower plan calls for, for example, calls for uh, Russian gas imports to be reduced by two-thirds only, only in one year. And I mean, of course, two-third reduction in the imports of gas from Russia that... That's a huge figure. It's staggering. And then further on, they're looking at targeting a goal of zero imports from Russia by 2030. So essentially removing uh, the, the Russian oil and gas from this equation, or Rus- uh, Russian uh, gas in this case. And of course, this will perhaps in the in the short term or in the medium term uh, require ramp up of, of uh, existing production facilities or, or existing production. Could be oil, could be gas, could be different types of sources. But 
evidently it's going to require or, or going to to lead to a lot of investment into the renewable space. So so ramping up the spending when it comes to renewable energy. So we didn't really realize at the time we started working on this report that this new situation would give it an even greater relevance and sense of urgency. An unfortunate coincidence, but a coincidence nonetheless. Definitely. And 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 it makes it even more relevant, I think, in a, in a pretty major way. I mean, it, it's natural also to view this from the point of view that, okay, we've got this enormous need, but then the inevitable question is, if all these na- investments need to be made, how will they be funded? And, and here is why we felt that project finance would be a good topic for a report, because we really believe that project finance could play a very, very key role in funding these massive investments in sustainable energy transition. And it could even arguably be said that project finance will even be necessary in order to allow an increased capacity for funding since so much money would actually be needed. So what is project finance? Without getting too much into technical details and sticking to a more sort of basic conceptual explanation of it, I think a good way to try and describe it is that it's financing a project based on its own projected cash flows. The project is funded based on its own merits as a project, where the assets of the project, such as wind turbines in a wind farm, for example, would be kept in ring-fenced special-purpose vehicle, a dedicated company that is designed to only do just that. And that special-purpose vehicle would have one sponsor or or possibly additional shareholders who would also co-invest in it. And the debt that it would have, whether it's loans or bonds, would be non-recourse. So any creditors would not have any claims going beyond the assets that are found within that particular entity. Touching briefly on the differences then to kind of normal corporate investments or, or normal funding of a project, uh, what would you say are the, are the key aspects? Uh, it, it, that's, that's a really good angle. And, and, and if you consider instead a business entity which has an operation, that would be a sort of going concern which has some kind of business activity. And any investments made, such as in a new factory or in a new production line in a plant or in a new... IT system, those would be of a sort of incremental character. You add something to a bulk of activities and operations that you already have. And whenever you make those investments, you would use in in that business operation funding, which is available, generated or borrowed or, or, or equity funds being invested in the business for the entire entity, the entire group. And then the credit profile would be based on the cash flows from the entire business mix with, within within that business, within that group. Whereas the project finance structure is one where it's isolated. It's completely standalone and separate. And project finance is a tool that you would not use typically or at all for these kinds of incremental or business as usual or routine type investments. So essentially you could say that project finance typically is a good choice or or could be a good choice when it comes to to bigger investments. And as you mentioned before, that can be financed on their own merit. So on the standalone basis. And and, and in this this area, we can also add, you know, different uh, projects based on, on new technology, for example, uh, which has yet to be commercialized. And, and the projects could also inc- include such uh, things as, as constructions. I mean, you, you mentioned, for example, wind parks, or, but it could also have to do with constructing a toll road, for example. Or so. so different types of projects, but where you could say that the, the, the key would be that they are financed on their own merit in, in this kind of ring-fenced uh, SPV. Exactly. And project would typically mean that something is being built, if not modified or, or 
built from scratch, then it becomes a project to actually construct it, make it exist. So, so going from the somewhat technical description of what would be a, a typical project finance structure, how, how common is this? How, how, how used is the structure and, and how big is the market? It is actually a big global market. Looking at project financing volume, it's about $420 billion worldwide. Of that $420 billion, roughly 70% is loans and about 30% is bonds. So, so it's 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 big. It's not tiny. And do we see any changes in in popularity? Are people or companies using it more or less, or, or is it kind of the same? If you look over, say, the the last decade or so, what we have seen is that the bond part of the market has grown pretty substantially, not too far from doubled, very very roughly speaking. Whereas the loan side of it has been more stable and and has a broadly stable development over over the years. So investors then taking on a larger share of the wallet, you could say that just financing yeah interest among fixed income investors in this kind of funding as an investment has clearly increased that that's that's a pretty pretty clear pattern that we see but one aspect that many who are not so familiar with product finance might reflect on is what about the risk level and and there is actually a lot of analysis sector on this right there is uh, and i guess given what we just talked about with, with investors uh, kind of getting more and more interested in this area of course this is a natural question to ask what is the risk profile when it comes to to project finance and, and what is really interesting here is that if you look at at kind of the the risk profile of a project finance over its lifetime uh, you could typically say that on average uh, you find by far the most risk in the beginning so during say year zero or year one or year two or year three that's where you're going to be finding uh, the most amount of uh, default risk and the reason for this is that these years are typically what we what you would call the construction phase so, so during the construction phase let's say it's a new technology this is where you're going to to feel it if you made a design mistake or if you've made some kind of kind of error or if something simply just goes wrong and and, and typically then what happens is that as you go further out in time so as you've you've uh, constructed the project Let's take a wind farm for as an example. And once it's up and running and starts to generate uh, cash flow, typically the risk goes down substantially. So what happens over time is that from an uh, from an investor perspective or from a risk perspective, the project kind of changes in its way of, of how risky it actually is. Could you quantify in any way what the risk level is like if you compare to other forms of uh, credit? So, so typically, just on a high level, in the early stages of a project, uh, you, you would typically see that it, it's kind of comfortably in the speculative grade rating. Whereas over the lifetime of the project, so as the years go on, it starts to become better and better and better better and, and on average projects typically end up in, in, in kind of a safe investment grade rating the years. And just for the listeners, if you if you talk about that in terms of, say, S&P credit ratings, what kind of levels are we talking about that would be the credit risk profile of pro- product finance in the early phase and then in the more mature phase? So comparing with S&P rated corporates, you, you would at the early stage be the most comparable to, say, a double B or a double B plus rated corporate. But then depending, of course, on, on, on what specific project is, but, but on average, uh, after a few years, you would start inching closer and closer to, to a triple B rating. Uh, and after a while, even a triple B plus, or, or in many cases, better. That's and that's really interesting. I think we were both a bit surprised when we saw that because that is a pretty solid credit risk level compared with other forms of lending to corporate entities or businesses. And it's also interesting to look at what the most common reasons for default are among those pretty few, but nonetheless product finance structures that do default on their debt. And and what we see very clearly there in uh, in the numbers is that the, the three sort of top drivers of default are 
either the most common one that the parent company is, is, is too structurally weak or that there is a counterparty failure. And that would probably be something you see during the construction phase that the contractor fails and then there is a problem with the default because it doesn't get completed according to plan. The second most common default reason is various forms of market exposure. So for example, power prices, if you have this wind farm example again, that they go against you and you haven't contracted them and locked them in to the extent that you might have needed. And you take a hit from some form of volatility in in, in the wrong kind of direction. And then uh, the third most common reason for default is technology problems or operational mishaps. And that's something you mentioned earlier, Victor, and, and that can, of course, go wrong when you have newer technologies which uh, which are being deployed and commercialized. This is really interesting, given these different areas that you mentioned, because taking all of these together, these are the ones that actually make up 90% or more of the reasons for default. So taking other factors, let's say the legal jurisdiction or regulation, that, that actually only makes up quite, quite a tiny bit of, of, of defaults. So in this case, looking at the different risk sources, say the, the counterparty risk or the market exposure or the, the technology... I guess we could just say that given the nature of your project, it's very important to be aware of what risks can be hedged and what risks are simply unavoidable. So let's say that you're constructing a project with an unproven technology, then obviously it's going to be difficult to get rid of the technology risk. But it will be even more important then to to make sure that you perhaps lower the counterparty risk or, or manage to hedge some of the market risk. Absolutely. And then there is, of course, as with all forms of credit risk, the matter of if it does go wrong, if there is some kind of default situation, what can you actually recover? And and just briefly here, uh, the recovery rates are typically better for project finance uh, than it is for, for example, term loans or or for bonds. Uh, and, And yeah, important to be aware of. And coming back to this whole renewable energy transition... It is, of course, huge. We're talking between $4 trillion and $7 trillion a year, pretty much over the next decade, in investments that will, will need to be made in order to limit global warming, to, to keep it within manageable levels. There will be many different kinds of parties who will need to participate by investing. There will be investments by states, by supranationals like development banks, and, and, and of course, to a great degree, also by corporates. And these investments are so big that there will be a need for all types of funding. We're talking equity, we're talking loans, we are talking bonds. But then, of course, there is this this tool, project finance. And it will, in the future, play an important role for what we're describing, since, since you need to both increase the funding capacity and you also need to help to, to kind of manage the risks from, from rolling out and commercializing new technologies. And, and project finance could be a very efficient way of, of structuring it so that you could allow for investors... Uh, and as we described earlier, with the risk shifting over time, you could attract different investors at different stages in the project and, and kind of have this flexibility uh, in the project. And at the same time, since it's a standalone vehicle, have a, as good of a risk uh, overview uh, as you p- could possibly have. And as we put it in the report, both boxes are kind of ticked for project finance in order for it to be relevant in the context of this sustainable energy transition. There is such a big need for capital that project finance can be a tool by inviting others to participate in the project that corporates or development banks or whoever the entities are would possibly be able to invest more than they would for investments which are just incremental additional parts of their ongoing business as such. And then there is the issue of managing risks related to some of these technologies being being new and being in a developmental phase where it can be very, very helpful to have others participate and not absorb all of the risk in gaining the necessary experience to make this work as planned yourself. And in addition to that, as we've discussed a little bit, uh, you, you of course have the benefits of the 
credit risk profile according to a lot of historical data with these studies going back that we've looked at as far as 1981. So pretty long time series showing that the performance of project finance historically has actually not been high risk compared with other forms of, of credit. Uh, we could come back to, to the word flexibility. That's, that's pretty much a, a central theme in this. And, and remember, project finance is, is, is not some magical kind of solution f- for, for this energy transition and the investment need. But what it is, is an important tool. And that, that's kind of what we want to bring to the table here. And with this tool, as we mentioned, it, it, it allows for this greater, greater degree of flexibility. And it allows for different types of investors to be active and to be engaged and to be able to allocate capital to projects as they see fit in, in, in a, an optimal way. And it could also, for example... Entail, you know, some some investors lending at an early stage of the project because they want to 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 have the construction risk. Some investors coming in at a later stage, etc. I think that's a pretty good way to conclude our talk on project finance. So thank you all for listening to this conversation. Really, really interesting. Always enjoy talking about these things, Victor. And I think we should also flag what's coming up next. And 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 here it's it makes me smile when I mention it because we have to warn our listeners that we are going to be talking next time about bank regulations. But the the really cool thing is that last time we talked about bank regulations, that was one of the biggest hits in terms of interest (laughs) to the material that we produce. It's hard to believe, but uh, it turned out to be the case. But, you know, who are we to disagree with our listeners or our readers? So since you loved it, well, there's going to be more. Last time when we wrote in a Nudia in Mind report about bank regulations, we, 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 we took a really deep dive into the Basel IV regulatory framework, which is on the way of being implemented. We are going to have another look at it. Uh, but this time we're actually going to take a look at it from the point of view of what will Basel IV mean for the case for a credit rating? Will a rating for a corporate make more sense or less sense? And what kind of effect might it have compared with what used to be the case now that we are going to be living under Basel IV? So that will be our next conversation. Very much look forward to uh, letting you listen in on that one and look forward to having another great conversation about that. So thank you all for this time and see you soon. Thank you.